Good morning. Welcome to First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth, meaning, and beauty. I'm Chris Jimerson, Minister for Program Development here at the church, and I have with me Michael West, your lay leader this morning. We welcome all of you here today. I bring you greetings also from our senior minister, Meg Barnhouse. Many of you know she is out on sabbatical, healing from an infection that developed from surgery she had on an on a hip implant, she wants you to know that she is getting stronger every day now and that your cards and words of love and support have really been a big help to her. I especially want to greet our visitors this morning. We're so glad you're here and we hope you'll join us for coffee and conversation in Housen Hall after the service. We come from a long tradition of seeing a spark of the divine in every person, and it's in that tradition that I invite you to turn to your left and your right and greet the holy among us this morning. It is also our tradition in Unitarian Universalist churches to begin our services by lighting a chalice, which is a symbol of our faith. Please say with me the words for lighting our chalice, which are printed in your order of service. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its law. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. I hope I have an appropriate call to worship this morning. A reading from the poem, Song of the Open Road, from Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. A foot in light-hearted I take to the open road. Healthy, free, the world before me, the long brown path before me leading wherever I choose. Henceforth, I ask not good fortune, I myself am good fortune. Henceforth, I whimper no more, postpone no more, need nothing. Done with indoor complaints, libraries, careless criticisms. Strong and content, I travel the open road. The earth, that is sufficient. I do not want the constellations any nearer. I know they are very well where they are. I know they suffice for those who belong to them. All seems beautiful to me. I can repeat over to men and women, you have done such good to me, and I would do the same to you. I will recruit for myself and you as I go. I will scatter myself among men and women as I go. I will toss a new gladness and roughness among them. Whoever denies me, it shall not trouble me. Whoever accepts me, he or she shall be blessed and shall bless me. Unitarian Universalism is a pluralistic religion. We draw from many wisdom and faith resources. We don't have a creed, set of beliefs that everyone has to agree to. So sometimes people ask us, well, if you don't have a common set of beliefs, what holds you together? Well, we have a lot that holds us together. As Unitarian Universalists, we have a set of principles that we affirm and promote. In this church, we have a set of values we have articulated, and out of those values arose our mission. It's our common purpose, and we say it together every Sunday. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Our contemplative reading this morning is from author Madeline Langle. It's no coincidence that just at this point in our insight into our mysteriousness as human beings, 
struggling toward compassion, we are also moving into an awkward interest in the language of myth and fairy tales. The language of logic, logical arguments, of proofs, is the language of the limited self we know and we can manipulate. But the language of parable and poetry, of storytelling, moves from the imprisoned language of the provable into the freed language of what I must, for lack of another word, continue to call faith. This is the time in our service where we breathe together. And breathing together, some of us pray, some meditate, some simply follow our breath down deep inside, follow our breath to that place of greater wisdom, that spark of the divine within each of us. And breathing together, feeling the loving presence of those around us, we enter into a moment of silence together, remembering that the sounds of small children and human sounds are a part of the sacred, are a part of the silence in this congregation. Breathing together, let us now enter that time of silence together. I invite you now to light candles in our window, candles of sorrow, of joy, of hope, of remembrance. Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was that without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. Thus God made the firmament in the midst of the deep. He used it to divide the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above it. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. The Sky World Woman. Back at the beginning, the world that we know now as Earth was nothing but water, while above it was a larger, more ancient world. Above it was the Sky World. And a woman from the Sky World, who was very curious, had dug a hole in that Sky World. She dug and dug until she dug all the way through and fell into the hole and out the other side of it. And so it was that this sky woman came tumbling down toward the vast ocean of water that was the whole of our world at that time. Then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass the herb that yields seed, the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind. And it was so. Then God said, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth. Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth. And it 
was so. Now, living upon our ancient watery world were all manner of water animals, and the animals looked up to the heavens and saw the sky world woman falling toward them at an altogether alarming rate of speed. And so the geese and ducks and the other water birds flew up to her, forming a net with their bodies and catching her as she fell, bringing her gently to the face of the waters where they placed her on the back of a giant sea turtle. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created male, then female. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Well... Now the sky world woman and the water world animals had a problem because the sea turtle couldn't hold her up forever and the woman really didn't swim very well. One of the animals, many say it was the platypus, recalled that there might be a substance called mud deep below the surface of the waters and perhaps they could bring some of that up and create something that the woman could rest upon. And so one by one, the animals began trying to dive as deep as they could in search of mud. The pelicans tried, a walrus tried, and on and on, but each one of them returned to the surface without having been able to go deep enough to bring up any mud. Finally, the otter said, I'll try. It was gone a very, very long time under the waters, and they were all afraid that it had drowned. But suddenly it popped to the surface of the waters a scoop of mud in its paw. The sky woman spread the mud on the back of the turtle and began to sing and dance upon it. And the animals sang and danced with her. And the mud began to spread and separate the waters until there was plenty of muddy land for the woman to live upon, as well as some of the animals who had decided to go with her. Now, you probably know the rest of the biblical Genesis story. God puts Adam and Eve into a great garden, a perfect world of beauty and bliss where all of their needs are met. He tells them there is only one rule. They may not eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge and of good and evil. Of course, they do so anyway. Most tellings of the story blame the woman for that. And God thrusts them out of the garden and into a howling wilderness, after which much toiling, trouble, sinning, and suffering ensue. Now, in our other story this morning, which I found through the work of two Native American writers and storytellers, Robin Wall Kimmerer and Thomas King, the Sky Woman gives birth to twins who work with the animals to mold the mud into mountains, valleys, and plains, as well as to cut rivers and streams through it. From seeds the woman had in her hand from all of her digging before she fell, they place upon the land all of the plants and vegetations that the animals and early humans will need for food and shelter. Now, for those of you on this side of the sanctuary to whom I just told the Genesis creation story, what are some of the key elements and themes of that story? There's a formality to it. It creates a hierarchical world. God, then humans, then animals and plants. Humans are given dominion over all other life. We have an omnipotent, 
male God who speaks all of creation into existence in a solitary, individual act. We have humans being given abundance, and then because of their original sin and thus their fundamental depravity, being thrown into scarcity. The world is a competitive place, God versus the devil, humans versus the elements, and each other. We have woman made second and blamed for the original sin. We have harmony being transformed into chaos. So what kind of culture might we form with this as our creation mythology? One that's hierarchical? Stayed and individualistic, one that focuses on competition and scarcity. Perhaps it might become a culture that values power over others and thus could easily become warlike, could justify imperialism, colonization, slavery, racism, and other forms of oppression. A culture that is foundationally patriarchal and that sees the natural world as a resource to be exploited. And for those of you on this side of the sanctuary, What are some of the main themes of that Native American creation story, and aren't they quite different? It's far less formal. It's even playful. There is no omnipotent God. Instead, the humans and the animals start with divine-like abilities. Working in cooperation, the humans and the animals bring the world into being, turning chaos into harmony. They exist communally and with far more balance and equity, no human dominion here. The original human is female, and the story has a maternal quality to it. With this as a creation myth, what sort of culture and society might we form? Might it not be very, very different? Now, I oversimplified all of that a bit. Still, the differences are stark. The power our stories have over us at a very fundamental level as individuals and as communities and societies is clear. We are storytelling creatures. We make sense of our experiences by folding them into a narrative that our brains are constantly constructing and reconstructing for us. And this is important to know. Because once we let a story loose in our world, we can never really take it back. We can only change the telling of it or, or create a competing narrative. Now, of course, we shouldn't read these mythological stories as being literally, historically true. They're to be read as metaphor, as poetic and symbolic. Reading them as too, as too literal is a mistake we often accuse fundamentalists of making. But I think we do this, too, in a reverse sort of way, by reading these stories too literally and thereby dismissing them without considering the poetic meaning and beauty we might find through them. Many of you are likely familiar with the Christian story of the virgin birth of Jesus, the divine Son of God whom God sent to the earth only that he might die on the cross to wash our depravity clean with his very blood so that whosoever should believeth in him should not perish but rise again as he did after his crucifixion. Now I personally can't take that story in a literal sense. And told the way it often gets told, it sometimes embodies values and ideas that I believe can actually be harmful. Violence, human depravity, redemption only through suffering, the spilling of blood and death. 
There are other ways this mythological story can be told, though, with a poetry that I find much more agreeable. Here's an example. Once there was a spark of divinity that arose out of human, humanity's highest aspirations for living more fully, with more love, compassion, and joy. And this spark lured humans toward the more life-giving, life-fulfilling choices available to them within the creative possibilities of their universe. But the evils of avarice, jealousy, and tribalism obscured their ability to see these creative choices held before them. The powerful couldn't see past their dominance and greed. The poor and oppressed were prevented from reaching for their full potential. Still, there was good in humans, and this found expression in the story of a child, a child who represented our highest human aspirations. The child grew into a wise leader, teaching others the healing power of love, drawing them toward compassion, calling them to give preference to the poor and the oppressed until such circumstances would no longer exist. But some of the most powerful among them would not hear this call. They vowed never to allow such teachings to continue, and they killed this wise one to extinguish that spark of divinity. What they didn't know is that human aspirations transcend any one person. They rise again and again, even up against the physical loss of one or more among us. What they did not know was that by killing one person, they only caused that spark to grow stronger, carried forward in the hearts of those who wish to dwell in love and in all that is life-giving. Same story told metaphorically and expressing a very different set of values not to mention far less blood and gore than the Mel Gibson film about it. And I think, I think it's important for us to reclaim and recast some of these ancient stories because they've been implanted into the very foundational structures of our society. Social and political science research has found that these myths are transmitted even into modern secular societies for even... Among the non-religious, they are enculturated through ethnosymbols, memories, values, rituals, and traditions embedded within the ongoing practices of a people. They are present even within the very language in which we think and speak. Some of you may have heard me talk about how when I was five years old, I told my mom I was going to be a minister when I grew up. But we were Southern Baptists, and when I found I couldn't fit within that religion, I created a story about all religion and what it was, and so thoroughly rejected the religious stories of my childhood that I left myself with absolutely no context within which to even consider ministry. It wasn't until many years later that I found Unitarian Universalism and began to feel a, a calling toward ministry resurging. I described that calling to a rather sharp-tongued friend of mine as a persistent little voice that wouldn't give up. She replied, well, tell the little voice to shut the hell up. We both laughed. 
Later, though, I realized that telling the little voice to shut up was what the story I had created for myself about religion had been causing me to do for all of those many years. I began to create my own story about religion as well as to reframe the religious stories of my childhood so that I could finally fulfill the aspiration toward which I felt beckoned. And I think that it is vital that we, as a religious, liberal religious faith, reclaim and recast these religious stories also, even though we may not share the beliefs and theologies they have sometimes been used to express. They are a part of the very fabric of the culture and country in which we live. And currently, they far too often are being used to cast a narrative that justifies vast wealth inequality, authoritarianism, violence, oppression, hyper-individualism, and the destruction of our planet. Certain folks are among the valued, chosen people and thus deserving of their wealth and power, and others are expendable or even to be debased. The New York Times recently ran an article about how a new public and political liberal religious voice is awakening after lying dormant for nearly 40 years. I believe that voice is sorely needed right now. It's been too quiet for too long. And to amplify our highest aspirations for greater peace, environmental stewardship, compassion, and communalism, we have to be willing to reclaim our religious voices in the public square and to recast that religious narrative that has taken hold. We have to be willing to use words like morality, like good, like evil. And if we are ever to develop greater understanding and compassion with those whom we disagree, we have to be able to hear and understand their stories and to be able to articulate our own. The stories we tell and the ways in which we tell them define us as human beings. To change ourselves, our relationships, our communities, our nation, and our world for the better, we will have to reclaim and reframe some stories that have already been let loose in our world. From time to time, we will even have to create new ones. It may not be as hard as it might seem. Maybe, maybe we dive into the deep, bring up a little mud, and begin the act of creation over and over again. May we sing and dance as we do so. Amen. Now please join me in saying our words for extinguishing the chalice, which are printed in your order of service. We extinguish this flame but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. As you go out into our world now, may you carry with you stories of compassion, joy, and peace. May the story of your life be centered in love. May the ongoing story we write together in this congregation be one of justice and healing. 
May the congregation say amen Amen. and blessed be. Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.